But then they also see in the newspaper and on the internet and ESPN that these athletes have surgery and they go back and are playing. Rob Gronkowski is a great patient. He's had three surgeries. He's back still yeah. out there kicking butt, you know. And so people kind of come in and they go, well, which one is it? Get, do the <laughs> surgery Gronkowski had on me. Don't do the one that my grandmother had. That she <laughs> and so whatever that is, you know, give me, give me the good one. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. On this episode's release, we find ourselves in week three of the 2018 NFL season. So what could be a better time than now to talk with a surgeon whose spine practice has treated more NFL and other professional athletes than any other in the world? Patients such as Dan Marino, Tony Romo, Peyton Manning, Wayne Gretzky, Reggie Jackson, and Rob Gronkowski, just to name a few. And if you like stats, check out this patient roster. 173 NFL players, 21 Super Bowl champions, 43 NBA players, 60 pro hockey players, 8 Stanley Cup champions, 112 Major League Baseball players, 30 World Series champions, 12 Olympic gold medalists, and the list goes on and on. Today's guest is orthopedic surgeon Dr. Robert Watkins IV. Along with his father, Dr. Robert Watkins III, and their partner, Dr. David Chang, they together run the world-renowned Watkins Spine Center in Marina del Rey, California. We'll go behind the scenes to discover what's involved with the treatment of these elite, high-profile athletes. We'll separate what really happens from all the noise and misconceptions out there, and we'll explore how modern surgical techniques can return many elite athletes with what were once career-ending injuries to a highly competitive level of play. We really had a blast with this one, so sit back and enjoy. With that said... Let's get started. Rob, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm yeah. really excited about it. We talked about this in the introduction, but your practice when it comes to spine-related care for elite athletes, the NFL, the NBA, the Olympics, you guys are it. I mean, it, it's an amazing practice that you have. And just take us briefly through how you guys got to where you are today. This, your father began this practice, and today you're, you're really the go-to for spine problems for elite athletes. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's been a fun journey that I've been on for about half of it. My dad uh, started in Los Angeles at USC, then was the first member of the Curlin Job Orthopedic Clinic doing mm-hmm. spines. And so Bob Curlin and Frank Job, you know, the, uh, the Tommy John surgery where he reconstructed Tommy John's elbow really was the advent of sports medicine. Before that time, operating on a human being so that they could go back and play a sport was you know absurd it was an absurd concept and and now we take it for granted somebody has a sports injury and we assume they're going to get fixed and make it back to their sport with a surgery but back then 30 40 years ago it was revolutionary and uh, really pushing the boundaries of what we thought was acceptable to do to humans and so my dad was their first spine guy probably 35 years ago here in los angeles and so he specialized in athletes neck and back problems and getting them back to their sport. Where, you know, before that, if an athlete hurt their back, everybody just assumed he was done. There was no way you're going to have back surgery and come back and play baseball or football. And so my dad was really a pioneer in designing microscopic surgeries. How can you do the surgery minimally invasive enough and still effectively treat the problem and then give this person a chance to get it back to their sport? And the second component is the rehab. My dad designed a whole rehab program with some great physical therapists where train the muscles to generate the power and strength to protect the spine and also to be able to do their sport. So he designed a whole rehab program that's been instrumental in uh, getting athletes back to their sport. So he started that at the Colonel Job Clinic, and then I joined him in practice 15 years ago. And we work together. We operate together every Tuesday and Thursday. We cover every team in Los Angeles. I do the Rams and Dodgers and Clippers. He does the Kings and USC football. And <laughs> wow. we pretty much we pretty much cover, you know, on the weekends we're working, covering games all the time. And the, uh, sometimes we go together, which is fun, and a lot of times but we're kind of on call 24 hours a day for any athlete who goes down in, in, in Los Angeles. And, but we also see people from all over the country, and uh, it's, that's a fun part of our practice. We really specialize in that and, and the high acuity and the, these high-performing athletes. Getting them back to their sport is a lot of fun, but also 95% of our normal patients are just everyday people. We do the same techniques and same approach to, to everybody as we do to the athletes. The athletes are kind of the fun and the 
high stress and the uh, high reward situation. We do the same thing with everybody. Was there anything in your training that you did to anticipate this high pressure life? Did you do anything different or focus on anything different, knowing that you might join your father in, in this incredible practice? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, growing up, I everybody would always ask me, "So you're going to be a doctor like your daddy?" And I'd always say, "No, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be like him. I'm going to, you know, right. forge my own path." And I was actually, I said, I said yeah. that too. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, until you realize you got to get a job, and you better, mm -hmm. you better figure it out. The, uh, in fact, I was a philosophy major in college. I went to Vanderbilt, right. and uh, I was a philosophy major. And it's funny because people think that's such a divergence, but in reality. Philosophy was so great for training my brain and how to make decisions, how to evaluate a situation, understand what's correct, what's incorrect, and, and how to make a proper decision. You know, that's 80% of my job today is really making decisions, whether to operate on somebody or not, whether they should have the surgery, what are the risks, what's the chance they're going to make it back to play their sport, how long are they going to survive? What's the, what's the rest of their future look like? Making these decisions is so instrumental. The surgeries we do, we do the same surgeries over and over again. That's not even really the difficult part anymore. It's more what's best for this individual person. So actually my philosophy training helped me kind of put things in perspective and make the decisions that are so instrumental and crucial. As far as my medical training and doing the surgeries, I trained in England for a year. I spent a year at the Queen's Medical Center in England where I did a lot of big deformity work, you know, crooked spines and screws and rods. And that was really instrumental in giving me the confidence of how to handle the worst case scenario. Then you kind of come back come back from that. The surgeries we do are pretty straightforward compared to some of the disasters that, you know, are out there. And so uh, just having the confidence to know that I can handle anything on my own in the operating room as big as a surgeon, that's kind of the first hurdle. It's great when you're in training, you do all this stuff, but then you're on your own <laughs> and uh, there's no one to turn to. You got to be able to handle it. Well, as a history major, I couldn't agree more with the background of liberal arts. I mean, it's, uh, believe it or not, there's... To all the kids listening, there's a lot you can do with it still. But, yeah, let's, you know, there's there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to this. Um, you know, we think about movies like Any Given Sunday, which, you know, it paints a certain picture of the care that elite athletes get, but also the controversy, you know, pushing through certain injuries. Just give us an idea, first of all, a patient who comes in, say they're an NFL player. Are they getting treatment that's different than any other patient that comes in? I mean, sometimes we think they're getting cutting-edge technology, stem cells, things that aren't available to the general public. What, what happens when they step in your door? So it's a bit of both. The, the biggest thing treating athletes is there's an urgency. you got to make the diagnosis. It's got to be an accurate diagnosis. you got to make that right away, and you have to start the treatment immediately. So, and you also have to come up with a prognosis. How long is this guy going to be out? Is this 24 hours of back pain or is this six weeks on the DL? <laughs> and, you know, as a doctor, that's almost impossible to predict, but we have mm -hmm. to come up with some parameters that we can tell the general manager because they got decisions to make and much less the agent and the press and the fantasy leagues and, and the player. <laughs> the, uh, so it's a really interesting balance between, and then the greatest thing that I, one of the greatest things I've gotten from my dad is, is focus on the patient ignore all the distractions and do your job. Don't get caught up in, oh, the playoffs are coming. This guy's got a contract. You know, that, that doesn't matter. Your job is focus on that person, make the, do a proper history and physical. You know, sometimes we examine people. It's before a game. It's a locker room. They got all their shoes and equipment on and things are running around. Like, we still have to do an exam. We still have to have them bend over and check their strength in their legs and do the doctor stuff. And, and ignoring the distractions and focusing on the player is number one key. Make that diagnosis, get all the tests. Another big part is ordering tests. Sometimes I'm kind of resistant, like, oh, we don't really need the test. Maybe we can wait a couple of days, you know, because we're, we're trained in that in medicine these days. We're kind of like gatekeepers. We're trained to try and save money for the medical system. Yeah. Well, when you're treating an athlete, throw that idea out the window. You got to make the diagnosis. <laughs> Get all the tests, and even if it's an inconvenience to the person, it doesn't matter. Get you know, make a proper diagnosis, and so that's a big focus: is is urgency, make the diagnosis, and you got to be accurate, obviously, as much as you can. And then, as far as the motivations go, I'd say ninety-five percent of all the athletes I've treated have been very straightforward because everybody's on the same page. The athlete wants to play. And that is the goal. That's their job. That's how they're going to make money. That's how they're going to support their family. They may have a three to five year window to make money for really for the rest of their life. Hopefully right. they can live on that. So if if you're too cautious and you're too and you and you and you just want to go in and protect the person and you're not necessarily helping them, your job is to is to 
identify significant risks. Obviously, any catastrophic injury, anything that's going to hurt them for the rest of their life, identify significant risks. But then also your job is to help them get better, to play the game, to win. You know, the bottom line of all the sports is the goal is to win. And so to some degree, you've got to understand that. And, and as a doctor, if you kind of approach a situation, you say, if you're too cautious or you're too protective where you say, well, these are the risks and, and you probably shouldn't take the risk. Well, that's the easy answer. You know, you got a you got a ba bad back or a bad neck. The easy answer is don't play for three months. Let it heal like any other human <laughs> being. Right. That's you know, but but if you're doing that, well, then you're not helping. Your job is identify the risk, make sure there's you know nothing really significant, and and that's pretty obvious. But you tell somebody they're at risk of a spinal cord injury, everybody sobers up and says, okay, well, yeah. nobody wants that to happen. So 95 percent of the time, everybody's on the same page. The agent, the team, the player, everybody just wants to get better, do what's right, and and do what's healthy, and um and so and and they're highly motivated. And then that's what's great, too. You know, we've got players who hurt their back. And I say, look, we got this five level back strengthening program. You got to get to level five. So your back muscles are strong enough before you can go back and play. I've had some big time athletes look at me and say, well, if I can do level five right now, can I play tomorrow? And so, you know, they're, 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 it's kind of like, wow, whoa, easy. That's not what I meant. You know, how about give it a week and get to level five? Right. But, uh, but they're so highly motivated that it, as long as you stay focused on treating the patient, make the diagnosis, come up with a safe plan, everybody's generally on the same page and, and, and highly motivated to make that happen. When you're examining a patient, is everybody in the room there, the agent, the player's mom, the coach? I mean, how many parties are you dealing with? I've had everything. You know, like I said, sometimes, sometimes all I get is passing the guy in the hallway and on his way to go. It's kind of like, <laughs> hey, how you how you doing? Good. And they keep walking and it's like, okay, I guess he's good. And this guy's and pads on, you know, okay. He's, yeah, he looks good. He had a smile on his face. I assume he's good. So the, uh, <laughs> and then all, and then also some of the, one of the other great things I got from my dad is make sure everybody hears the same message. So if we see an athlete in the office, after you meet, you make, you make your diagnosis, do the exam, come up with a plan, call everybody in the room, anybody they want you to call, call the girlfriend, wife, mother, agent, team, call them all, put them on speakerphone with the player there so everybody hears the same message. Right. Because, you know, it's like that telephone game. If you say one thing and then you <laughs> talk to somebody else, it's shocking what people take from that conversation. So, and also dictating. I dictate, you know, my report in front of every patient so they okay. hear what yeah. you're thinking and you're documenting it so there's no misunderstandings. But I've also had some pretty high intense situations where I've gone, I've, you know, been in a dugout in a locker room, general manager, coach, player, trainer, everybody there and coming up with a, a plan and a schedule for things we didn't learn in medical school. Like this guy's got to pitch on this date in order to be ready for the playoffs. Well, when can he start throwing 50 feet? <laughs> when can, can he throw off a mound? When you know all these all these things that as a doctor wow. you kind of I, yeah, I don't know you know that's but but <laughs> but the great part that we learned in medicine is uh, come up with a plan, you know if you take control of the situation instead of saying well I'm not an expert in that and kind of shying away and hoping somebody else will pick up the slack take control of the situation talk to all the experts talk to the trainer talk to the physical therapist talk to everybody in charge talk to the experts talk to the player what do you have to do to play your sport. This is what right. you need. Okay. Well, let's, we got six weeks. Let's count backwards six weeks and come up with a calendar and make sure that by the time six weeks comes around, you've done everything to check those boxes off. And so as simple as it is, come up with, come up with a calendar and a plan and put it down in writing so that everybody has something to work with. And that, and that gets rid of a lot of the anxiety and the stress and the unknown. And then, like I said, people can make plans accordingly. Then the general manager and everybody else can go, okay, well, we can work with that. Yeah. You made an interesting point uh, a while back about the um, athlete saying, well, if I could do level five tomorrow, can I get in? Um, obviously, a level five is going to be different for an athlete than me. I mean, an injured athlete is going to be stronger than I'll ever be. Um, how do you adjust that in the rehab program to accommodate the, the very different skills and very different strengths of an athlete? 
Yeah, a lot. so our program is called uh, Back Doctor, and it, we have an app. It's a free app. It's available, you know, in the App Store, and it's called Back Doctor, and it has the whole program. It's quantitated, one to five. Mm-hmm. And the great thing, and the genius thing about my dad is, you know, orthopedists love categories and levels, and you know, it's a type okay. one, type two, type three, and it's a sports thing. Most, you know, guys are going to orthopedics and girls are going to orthopedics are very athlete sports driven. So all these, all these kind of categories. So my dad took the strengthening back program and made it into five levels so which is so basic but it's basically you know that gives us an idea is how strong is your core therefore what activities can you safely do and we treat use the same program to treat everybody so anybody after we've done surgery on them or after even non-operative it's the same program non-operative when you get to level two we know your muscles are strong enough that you can do an elliptical, you can bike, you can swim. When you get to level three, you can start rotational exercises. Athletes can start to throw, hit, you know, shoot hoops, skate. And uh, most normal people go back to all their activities, daily life when they get to level three. So normal people, level three is the goal. And really, you know, older people, it's more like level two. College athletes, level four. Pro athletes got to get to level five. And it's just, a, yeah, it's just a way for us all to communicate. And that for a week, we can operate on a guy from New York. He can come out. We can do the surgery. and go home after five days. And we can do all the rehab over the phone and by text message and, uh, and with, with the program. Wow. Yeah. So I'm curious because when you read in the news, it seems like we know everything about these players, their injuries, their recovery, and HIPAA still exists. So I... I'm just curious, you know, and it could be different from the NFL to the NHL to the NBA, but are players contractually obligated to share their information with the media? Is that just something that they commonly do? And then your role in this, how do you manage that? Because I'm sure you're getting calls all the time wanting to know, you know, that people want an edge. I mean, this could be everybody from agents to coaches to bookies. I mean, how right. do you manage that process and how does it actually work? So uh, players – agree to the that the team can release their medical information and so they actually sign a release and so then the team basically manages the medical information and just what you said the betting is a huge part of it so you know like the nfl Mm -hmm. and every sport that you've got to say by wednesday is this questionable is it probable what's the chance this person's going to play or not it has to be as accurate as possible because there's a lot of interest on the line not not just betting, but even my fantasy league. I can't be losing to my ten year old, so I got to know the I got I got to know the information. I try not to exploit my medical information to beat my ten year old in fantasy football. By the way, I try I try and I try and restrain myself. You just do not, it by skill. That's all. Yeah, exactly. And I not drop a guy because I know he's got something going on with him. The, uh, but. Uh, but uh, as far as how do I handle it and my dad, I mean, my dad's so great. I've learned so many lessons from my dad and my dad. I'll have to you have to meet him sometime. He's, he's a he's a great everybody loves my dad. He's from Memphis. He's a he's a southern guy. Got, got great charm and charisma and really just people love him. He's very one on one and, and uh, very present, very generous guy. But and, and wise, you know, he's experienced so much stuff. He's, he's pretty low key and and, um, you know, doesn't express too much self-centeredness, I guess, but a pretty low-key demeanor, but he's so smart. His decision-making and reading a situation and knowing how to do the right thing, how to, what's the priorities in the situation? Take care of the person and then deal with the other stuff. Just his, his grounded decision-making, I really admire and respect and try and learn more and more from all the time. The, um, and with him, with the, with the press and people calling and all this other kind of stuff, his answer is he just doesn't answer the phone. He doesn't respond to any emails and answer the phone. It isn't an issue. He just ignores them. The, uh, you know, whereas, whereas for me, I'm kind of like, well, we can talk about it. You know, this would be, it's an interesting topic, you know, and this kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm probably walking down the plank, you know, and he's just looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, so, uh, but part of it is also, um, you know, whatever information gets publicly, publicly released, well, then you can safely talk about it because it's been publicly released. But other than that, um, you just can't talk about it. And I'd probably say in our practice, 80% of the athletes we take care of, it never gets released. So, right. and it's kind of, it's always surprising to me as to when teams release information or not. Um, some, some teams and some sports don't release anything and, and other teams, right. you know, kind of release it and, and say, oh, and this doctor took care of them and everything else. And uh, it, it's a little bit unpredictable. But uh, I think every team just kind of makes it up and has their own policy. So let's talk about one of the I mean, you've got a lot of people on this website that you guys have treated. But one of the more famous is Peyton Manning. 
here's a guy who was everything to the Colts. And he had had, I think, several, maybe two or three cervical procedures at that point, non-instrumented, um, finally needed an ACDF, which is what he came to you guys for. And this was a, is a turning point because one team, the Colts, didn't believe he was going to recover. Um, the Broncos took a chance on him, and it worked out for them. And it's an amazing story. But let's talk about him for a little bit because I, I'm just imagining being in your shoes. It's also a risk when you take on a player like this. What if, you know, what if they don't recover? And then how do, you, how do you deal with somebody like that whose career actually still has a lot of potential left? But tell us as much as you can about him, you know, where he was and then how he got to you. Yeah, and obviously I can talk about whatever's been publicly released. <laughs> the, um, and, and the high-stakes situation is an interesting component to where I love that my dad and I are, are still working together because we kind of treat half the teams. And so the stress that that weighs on you is one of those things that's so great being able to work together because we can share in it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like our cocoon right. where we can talk about things and share in it, just the emotional stress, um, whether it's, it turns out to be good or bad, you know, and we've gotten a lot of great results in athletes and players, but we've also had some bad ones. And that just happens. You know, it's an odds game. We do surgery on somebody 80, 90 percent of the time. Things work out well. They get back to their sport. Well, that's 10 to 20 percent that have issues. And so dealing with that is just a part of kind of keeping a level head and realizing this is just part of our job. It happens in even our players who aren't athletes. And just because it gets splashed all over the cover of the New York Times doesn't affect the job you did and what you're going to do tomorrow. You know, you still got to wake up tomorrow and treat the next person who's coming in. And and so keeping that level head is huge. As far as Peyton goes, um, his, uh, he, the dot, the, you know, the publicly released information is he did have uh, surgery and he was having weakness in his throwing arm. And so ultimately we decided to do the fusion and the few, a fusion in the neck is the most common surgery done in athletes because it's the best thing to treat the nerve. Because the fusion makes more, we directly under the microscope take the pressure off the nerve, and then we're able to distract the hole open to make more room for the nerve, and it stops the motion, which stops any residual irritability of the nerve. And so we've we published a paper where we uh, did fusions on 25 pro athletes. It's the biggest series ever produced, and 80% made it back to play their pro sport afterwards. And the average return is about nine months. Wow. And so a, fu a fusion. So in a lot of these athletes who if it's their throwing arm or dominant arm that they need to do their job and they have a damaged nerve and they, we got to get that nerve to recover so they can do their job. We're going to do a fusion because it has the best chance of treating the nerve. The downside is if you stop the motion at that level, you fused, it can put more stress on the other levels, which can accelerate wear and tear and develop problems at those other levels. And that happens like 20 to 30% of the time developing problems at other levels in 10 to 15 years. So there is no black and white answer. And that's what I mean about the decision-making and like, as far as the Colts, I mean, the Colts, I think probably had a pretty good idea that he could come back at some point and potentially play. But at the same time, they, you know, they had the, uh, the opportunity to draft Andrew Luck and, you know, who's going to argue with that? I mean, obviously, that was, yeah. you know, so that was obviously a pretty good bet, but Peyton coming back and being able to play and win a Super Bowl and have the run that he did was really amazing. Of course, as a surgeon with with my dad, you know his the the ball that he threw wasn't quite as tight and as sharp as it used to be. It's still, but, <laughs> but he was he was he was so smart and had such right. command that it was so beautiful to watch. You know, and for me that's such a great part of sports, right? Is that it's not just the physical skill and ability, the mental part, and the present and the decision making as a quarterback. I mean, he knew exactly who to throw the ball to before the ball was ever hiked. And that was such a beautiful thing to watch. And uh, so he he compensated in many ways and was able to do everything he did just because of who he is and how much experience he has. And he's a great guy. I mean, he really is such a, a generous guy and a very down-to-earth guy that uh, watching him have such great success was fantastic. God, I bet. I mean, it must have been so rewarding for you guys, too. And just, you know, when you talk about your team at the hospital, I mean, you know, it's not every day Peyton Manning's coming in, right? It's a little more often that these people are coming in in your practice, obviously, than some other ones. But uh, how do you deal with just the, you know, the celebrity factor there? Is it an issue? Um, our hospital is an interesting place. This is really low key. We're, I'm in Marina Del Rey. I have a view of the Marina here outside of my office, and the hospital is right across the street. It's a 50 bed uh, small hospital. We've been here about 12 years. And uh, but it really didn't have the big reputation in L.A. You know, there's Cedars and St. John's and UCLA and USC, all these big hospitals. And we're at this small uh, private hospital, community hospital. 
it's been great for us because it's it's so personalized that we know all the physical therapists and nurses and it's all private rooms and so it's kind of like a boutique hospital that um a lot of the athletes come into and they'll come in here and no one will even know they're here they'll come and have surgery and and uh what the fun part for me is that the nurses and therapists everybody we work with um you know every once in a while an athlete will come in and they'll just be so excited and starstruck and sometimes it's like a hockey goalie you know, and this and this one <laughs> 60 year old nurse, she just loves hockey and she loves this guy, you know. And so you get these people have such a connection with athletes sometimes that's, you know, just so genuine and surprising. And uh, so they get they get kind of getting excited about it. But our hospital's done a great job of obviously the confidentiality. And, you know, we reiterate it, uh, making sure everybody knows we're on the same page that you can't tell anybody and don't ask them for their autograph as much as right. you want. Leave them alone. There's still a patient who's having surgery and they're stressed out about their life and their career. So um, it's worked out really well. And I think a big part of it is because it's such a small place that we know everybody and everybody knows that this is uh, how we make our living and this is what supports the whole place and this is the what the practice is about that everybody holds it with a certain degree of sanctity that very, everybody's very protective of it. What about your uh, non-celebrity patients? Do you find they come in saying, well, I want what Peyton Manning had. I want exactly what you did for him and I want you to, um, you know, let me play Super Bowl. I mean, I'm joking about that. Yeah. Is that... Does that change the expectations that people have who who may not be professional athletes coming into your care? Yeah, it does. You never know. I mean, people are so funny, especially with spine surgery. Uh, part of the reason why I started my podcast is because I realized this dissonance of, of information is that people hear, oh, never have back surgery. You know, they're, they're having a bad back. They're struggling around for two to three years and their whole family will say, whatever you do, don't have surgery. You'll be worse. You'll never walk again. But then they also see in the newspaper and on the internet and ESPN that these athletes have surgery and they go back and are playing. Rob Gronkowski is a great patient. He's had three surgeries. He's back still yeah. out there kicking butt, you know. And so people kind of come in and they go, well, which one is it? Get, do the <laughs> surgery Gronkowski had on me. Don't do the one that my grandmother had. That she <laughs> and so whatever that is, you know, give me give me the good one. And uh, so I started these podcasts. My podcast is Dr. Robert Watkins. And the podcast, the first one I ever did was on spine surgery. Does it work? And kind of talking about, you know, what are the parameters? Because a big part is um, understanding what's going on in your back. You know, your the spine is so complicated. You got all these discs and then facet joints in the back and you got nerves coming out so many movable parts that people are people who are 50 say, I got a bad back. I, I need to be fixed. I need you to fix me. I can get back and play golf and surf and live a crazy life and not do my exercises, but I got to get back to it. You know, how are you going to fix me? People don't have a realistic understanding of how complicated the spine is. All these movable right. parts, they're falling apart starting at age 28. By the time you're 50, it's a miracle if you don't have back pain. Yeah. And so kind of re reconfiguring people's understanding. I mean, one thing I love about America and Los Angeles is people are so active. And our expectations are, I want to have a perfect life and I'm going to do what it takes to have a perfect life and nobody's going to hold me back. And that's a great spirit and attitude. The problem is sometimes it's delusional. You know, people people think, <laughs> fix me, and so I can get back to all my stuff. And so the education has been huge. And that's what I've loved about the podcast is I can make these recordings. People can go home and digest them and listen to them over and over again and start to get some understanding. You know, I was in training for 10 years, and I've been in practice for 15 years. So I have 25 years of experience and, and knowledge that other people will never have. You know, I have some patients coming to me. They're an attorney. They're a professional, they're a smart person, they're great at their job, but they know nothing about spines. So how are they going to make an educated decision about their life and their spine when I've got 25 years of advantage of knowledge? They're, they're, they're always going to be at a disadvantage. They're never really going to be able to make a proper decision. And so getting them the information, I think, is huge. And so I spend a lot of time with people really getting out the model and showing them, okay, this is what's going on, and so what can we realistically do? And then, and then they can go home and digest it and come back. But uh, our general principle is, I mean, we treat probably 70, 80 percent of people without surgery. And mm -hmm. the and the athletes we see, I mean, I see, you know, two or three or four athletes a week. Uh, and so 95 percent of them we treat non-operatively. Right. And so we've got and the, the podcast help with that, too. OK, here's everything you can do to not have pain and to live your life and have good habits. And our app is awesome because they can get on the program, do all the exercises on their own. The uh, but then ultimately, when it comes to surgery, it's. What's the smallest possible surgery we can do that's going to address your problem and cause as little 
other problems. And so keeping that in mind and teaching people about uh, the proper focus. And also, here's one other part. If we do surgery on somebody, like this little microscopic surgery, and it treats their nerve pain, and then pain comes back three years later, if they come in and they say, well, it failed, pain came back three years later, I didn't educate them well enough. If we do a small surgery and you get three years of pain relief, that's a success. And right. you need to understand that. And then, you know, you may have to have another one because the spine is still moving and you're still walking around. And so it's still deteriorating as time goes on. Well, that's right. interesting. So, you, I mean, you talk about your experience and this is the same with a lot of surgeons, right? And people nowadays, they go online, they talk to their neighbor, they, you know, they try to diagnose things for themselves. Do you find that there's any difference between some of these athletes and their willingness to listen to your expertise um, versus other patients who might go, you know, listen to Dr. Google? Is there any difference? Do you, do you find athletes more involved with trying to self-diagnose their care? I, a bit of everything. So the athletes, one of the hardest hurdles to overcome with athletes is, is that they are an expert and at the best at what they do. And they've gotten to where they are by doing it how they do it. And so if a guy, you know, squats and, and lifts weights and does things to build up his butt and leg strength to be able to do his job and get the power he needs, and then he hurts his back, and I have to convince him that he can't squat and do his usual workout routine, he's got to adapt it because now he has a bad back and how's he going to do that? I got to convince him that I know what I'm talking about, that I'm not just a surgeon, but I actually know rehab and, and I can help put him on a program or get him with certain experts who can do that. So a big part of it is convincing them that because, the, you know, they're the best. I mean, you're talking about people who yeah. have have been smarter and been better than everybody else around them their whole life. And that's why they are the top at what they do. So convincing them that you have something to offer, that you can help modify things and work with them to with the same goal. I mean, like I said, the, the goal is to get better and to get back and to be healthy. So at least we're on the same goal. But but kind of overcoming some of those barriers is do they do they trust you? Do you know what you're talking about? And you got to follow up. You know, you got to you got to stay on top of it. You have to modify things. You have to be flexible. You got to adapt to them because a lot of times they know what they're talking about. You know, no, yeah. this is what they need to do, and and they know better than anybody. And so working on some of that with some of the athletes just because they're so good and they're so they're so used to being the best is one component the other component is some of the newer techniques that are out there, you know, uh, like stem cell injections or the laser for spine surgery or different things which sound great. You know, you go on the internet or they've had a friend who tried it and it helped and all these things sound great and so educating people as to okay, what's safe, what actually makes sense and what is just pure BS and marketing. And what, what's the truth in there? I think you have a whole a podcast episode about that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I like to, yeah, yeah, I mean, I made a whole podcast on laser spine surgery is BS, you know. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, like in regards to the laser, I mean, the laser sounds amazing. Cause, and I realized what makes people susceptible to these marketing things on the Internet? you got to get in touch with to understand why, why is it appealing to them. And like the laser is a great example. The laser sounds like it's non-invasive. It sounds like it's not a surgery. You know, they're just going to zap you <laughs> while, while you're sleeping and it's going to be gone. But it also sounds permanent, you know, no, because people come into me, they say, I don't want surgery, but I want a permanent fix. Well, those two things don't usually really go together. You know, they're the and so uh, the, the laser sounds like the perfect in between of non-invasive, but a permanent fix. And that's why people are susceptible to it. And and right. and so. And, and what, what I think they do a lot of times when they say laser spine surgery, what they're doing is the same surgery everybody else is doing. So they're actually making an incision. They're actually removing the stuff, putting the pressure on the nerve. And then I don't know when they use the laser. I think they just turn it on <laughs> with a disco light to, for everything to look and then, and then, and then finish the surgery. And, uh, and I don't know for sure. And I'm not talking about any specific institution, so don't hold me liable or, or anything else. The, uh, the, but, but I think that many times they're still doing it as proper surgery. So when the patient wakes up, they're still getting the pain relief. They ju it just sounds better than whatever we're calling it. And uh, so, and then the stem cells. I'm, if, uh, I may mention that because it's been such a big topic. Stem cells sound amazing. It sounds like regeneration. It sounds like the fountain of youth and getting you know de degenerative material to regenerate. Well, that's never been proven. Not in spines. Mm -hmm. As of now, stem cells. The best stem cells do are anti-inflammatories. You take your blood, you spin it down, you get some anti-inflammatories out. You inject them back into the person. It may decrease some of the pain and inflammation. And so it may work and it may decrease pain. But is it regenerating material and stopping the aging process? Well, no. 
That's never been shown. And, you know, that's like the fountain of youth. That's going to be a miracle. Whoever discovers that, it's going to be a trillion-dollar discovery. So whatever's out there now is not what is going to be there in five or ten years. And I'm okay with some of the stem cell injections as long as people are properly educated. And they re- and, and if and even I'll maybe say one other thing, stem cells haven't been shown to be as effective as cortisone. So an anti-inflammatory steroid, you know, prednisone, cortisone has been around a long time. When I do injections on athletes, I'm going to use cortisone because we know it works. And there's good reliability and reproducibility about it. And you can get like three to four cortisone injections in your spine a year for several years. It's never been shown to have a negative effect. So I'm going to go with the gold standard that we have a good, reliable outcome. And rather than spinning down some blood products and injecting it back into somebody where we don't even really know what is being injected. Um, and so that's kind of that's 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 part of my my approach to two of the biggest topics out there. That's really interesting. interesting. I mean, because it's a lot of these athletes, they spent their whole lives preparing for where they are and they've worked hard for it. It's not something that just came overnight. You know, they didn't just take a chance and everything worked out. So it's a, probably a different mindset. And. I think this is a misconception a lot of people have. They think elite athletes have access to this cutting-edge, hidden care that's not available for everybody else. But that's not really, one, what you offer, and two, really what they want, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's an excellent point is that, you know, cutting-edge means also a learning curve, you know. So so just because it's new and fresh doesn't mean it's better. That just means it's still experimental, right. and we don't actually know whether it works or not, or whether it may hurt you. And so, and that it is a bit. That's I'm glad you raised that because it's an excellent point. A lot of people come into me, you know, very affluent, professional, smart people, and they come in and they look and they say, "Look, I'm with the newest and the latest and the greatest, and I've done all this research, and and well, this new this thing is new, so it's got to be better." And well, no, not necessarily. And that's part of the American mindset. You know, it's kind of consumerism, like. You know, the new Coke, bigger and fresher and brighter and new and improved. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and so for my job as a doctor is to evaluate these products and say, okay, what are the risks? What's the chances going to help? How is it better than what we're currently using with how much reproducibility? And then ultimately it comes down to would I do it in me? Would I have somebody stick this thing in me or not? And, uh, so we're, we're on the cutting edge because there's some great advances. When I, on the, the other great thing about America, because I trained in England for a year, I kind of seen and I've traveled all over the world. One of the other great things about American medicine and American society is the advance of all the new stuff and getting better all the time is, is such a great spirit of evolution that um, we're always evaluating new products and, and, and new stuff to treat our patients. But, but you got to be smart about it. You really got to look at, like I said, what ultimately – is this product ready to be put in me or, or, or really another human being? And, uh, and, and what are the downsides? And so you're exactly right about the athletes. The number one thing is we got to get them better. What has the best chance of getting them better now? And, if, and sometimes it's the newer products, but it's not like we're going to experiment on the athlete. You know, you're not going right. to take, take a Cy Young winner and go, oh, yeah, let's try this on them. Let's see if this works. <laughs> you know, <Right>. so, <laughs> right. Yeah, you only go to the Olympics maybe once. So, uh, yeah, let's just uh, take a gamble on this. But yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, I found out this really cool thing. Let's put it in you, <laughs> see if it works. All right, well, we're getting uh, pretty close to the time here, Rob. So, you know, we know you got to get back to seeing patients. Just a few more questions here. One quick one, and I just thought of this while we were talking. We're talking about uh, the spine world, particularly. Uh, insurance denials, pushback from insurance companies trying to get things approved. That's, that's a reality a lot of surgeons and patients have to deal with right now. When you're dealing with insurance companies for the NFL or the NHL, um, even even one for uh, USC, do you find that you still have pushback from payers, you know, who want second opinions? Do you have to do a peer review for something when you recommend treatment, or is there much difference at all? So it's kind of a mixed bag. The, one of the biggest things with the athletes is um, a lot of it's workers' compensation, which people ah. don't really realize. A lot of times it's the same insurance company as a dock worker down in Long Beach. It's the no same kidding. insurance plan, which ah. is kind of crazy. The, um, but, the, <laughs> but at least the authorization process usually is not an issue because the head team trainer or team doctor has the ability to just authorize things to us in a text or over the phone. They could go ahead wow. and do it. So. Usually that's not an issue. We can get the test, get the studies, um, and so it usually happens pretty quickly. I think one of the hard parts is, is one, sometimes the affiliated 
people around the team who are still very important in a crucial role, they aren't necessarily covered. They're covered by the private insurance. And so they want to come in, they want to come in and get an MRI and get an epidural all in the same day. And cause that's what I can do with the athletes. You know, if, if they call me and an athlete has back pain, I can see him get the MRI, do an exam and do an epidural in like an hour and, and to get the clock rolling, make a diagnosis, get the clock rolling on the rehab in an hour, you know, which is amazing and, and yeah. awesome. But the problem is some of the some of the you know the affiliated people around the team kind of want the same thing, and then <laughs> then then I've got to talk to them and go, well, you got this insurance plan, and they're going to want a pre-authorization, and we're going to have to wait five days, and then I may have to do a peer-to-peer <laughs> and all this other kind of stuff, and and they and you know they kind of it's not that they get mad at me, but they get frustrated, and, and it's like, look, this is not this is not I'm not calling the shots here, you know, and and if we and if we don't do it, you're going to get a bill for five grand. And, you know, so, yeah. so, the, so the extraneous part certainly is frustrating and, and, um, it's part of modern medicine. I mean, it's a drag to me because I think the biggest part is the pseudonyms that get used. Like they call it evidence-based medicine right? <laughs> and they, and they, they use all these terms which sound like, well, who's against evidence-based yeah, medicine? Yeah, as opposed you know, to what? As, yeah, right. As opposed to just doctors winging it. But, but the reality <laughs> is in my experience, it's insurance companies wanting to save money, period and dragging things out because they hope people will just go away and stop trying to get the epidural and stop trying to get the treatment and, and or the doctors will just quit and say, you know what, I'm so sick of doing these peer-to-peers. I'm not calling anybody <laughs> back today. I'm actually going to go home. And right. so, you know, by dragging things out, they ultimately do save money. And when I trained in England for a year, you know, if somebody had back pain and needed to get an epidural, you had to wait three to six months to get an epidural. Wow. Well, you know, people here in America are like, I'm in pain. I need an epidural today because I got my kids football game tomorrow and I'm going to Cabo this weekend. I got stuff to do. I can't. <laughs> I need an epidural. And, uh, you know, in England, the, the patients just suck it up and live with it and accept it. Three to six Stiff months. Stiff upper so, lip, you know. Che- che- cheerio. I'll see you then. <laughs> and uh, and so it's, it's certainly frustrating, but but it's also just the reality of uh, trying to navigate the system. So talking about kids really quick. Um you know, what are your thoughts about, uh, well, say football, for example, you know, the risk of, you know, head injuries for one thing. I mean, that's, that's a little, you know, more in the, uh, the neurology area, but it's, you know, still in your wheelhouse. And how do you feel about kids, you know, starting football at a young age versus an older age? Um, cause there's a lot of parents and kids thinking about that today. Yeah, it's a really tough call. I got two boys, 12 and 10, Bobby and Tommy, Robert Watkins, the fifth is yeah, Bobby. Well. I'm a, yeah, and uh, Tommy got his own name, so we're not totally crazy. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, and, and and I coached my kids' flag football team uh, for like five years, and it was awesome. I mean, yeah. football is such a great sport. You know, the plays and the designs and the throwing. You can take a football on vacation wherever you are and throw the ball around. I mean, it's such an awesome sport. And um, and I also love basketball and soccer and other sports, but football is so unique. And there's just something about the strategy and, and the game of football that, that I just love, even though I played water polo in high school, you know, but, but I, you know, still a tough sport though. Yeah. Water polo is pretty tough. The, uh, the, uh, and so with our kids, you know, flag football is a great sport and, and to learn the skills and to get everything involved and it's getting bigger and bigger. We're here in West LA and, and, uh, everybody's down on football here. Nobody plays tackle football. No person really? I know or kid I know plays tackle football. Mm. Um, but you know, we're kind of in West LA and people tend to be, a little more concerned and and conscientious about life and trying to be perfect in every aspect and protect their kids. The uh, so everybody's down on football uh, in my neighborhood and kind of around where I live. Uh, but flag football has been a lot of fun, been great. So my kid uh, just got into a school where they have a tackle football team starting in ninth grade. And uh, my wife said, nah, he's not playing tackle. You know, so you can ask me my opinion, but ultimately, are my kids going to play? Well, you know who's going to determine that. It's going to be my wife because she's the smart one. And, Understood. Uh, and so, but, you know, uh, the, the, they play this eight-man uh, football where I went to a game and it was crazy. Like, they, they hit each other, they wrap each other up, and they have, and then the ref blows the whistle. Wow, and they right. didn't actually go to the ground. And that happened like 30% of the time where I was kind of watching it, and I was like, whatever sport this is, he can play. I don't know exactly <laughs> if this is football, but he can play this. This is actually okay. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, I was on the Rams sideline. I'm on the, I cover the Rams games. I was on the sideline for the Rams game the next day and watching these guys hit each other. I mean, you know, 250 pounds, runs a 4-3, 
crunching each other, you know. So there's different degrees of football. There's no question about that. But in general, you know, but I also believe in this. I don't think things are totally black and white as far as I'm not the kind of person who says something's good or bad, yes or no, and that's it. My policy with our kid is he can play football, but if he gets a significant concussion, then he's out. And sure. if he if he has if he has a little one, uh, you know, make sure the symptoms resolve completely. He has like six weeks of no symptoms. You know, you got to let the brain heal. Then he could play again. If he gets a second one, then he's out. And so that, that that's my plan. Whether whether my kid will be honest with me and tell me whether he actually had a concussion or not, <laughs> we'll have to find out. But uh, but it, it's a tough decision. There's no easy answer to it. But I do think that uh, being smart about it, the coaches, then the teams practice and hit. They hit so much less in practice now. So everybody's getting smarter about it. We're learning information. The NFL's changing them. You know, people are raising, going crazy about, oh, that was a legal hit. That was a perfectly safe hit. He shouldn't have got thrown out of the game. Well, so what? So what if a guy gets thrown out of the game? We're trying to protect people. So what if the refs miss a call or they overcall it to protect the player? Big deal. You know, we're looking at the big picture. We're trying to protect people. I'll tell you one other thing. My dad uh, developed a video called See What You Hit. And this mm-hmm. is 25 years ago. Uh, everybody... In my family, I got th- uh, four brothers and sisters, and everybody worked on this project and was packaging videotapes. And we sent a video to every high school in America really? called See What You Hit. And it's basically the same program that Pete Carroll uh, teaches of how to tackle properly. Keep your head up. Don't spear. See what you hit. Keep your head up. They got a program now called Heads Up. Same basic thing. You can teach players how to do this properly and safely. The biggest problem is if you have an undersized defensive back, you know, some kid who's only 5'8", and he's got to take down somebody who's 250, <laughs> and they're going to lower their head to do it. But you right. got to, you have to teach them that, that, that they can't do that, and it's unacceptable. And that's part of our decision-making. We had an all-pro defensive back who we said, okay, look, you can go back to play football, but if you lower your head and hit somebody with the top of your head, you could be paralyzed or this, you know, you could have a real injury. And he said, fine, I won't do it. I'm good enough. I don't have to lower my head, and I can adjust. Yeah. Well, he was an all-pro who'd been in the league right. 10 years. Yeah. He could right. adjust. Yeah. But if you're talking about an 18-year-old kid who's trying to make the team, no. It, you know, Sometimes we, we'll say, no, you just can't play because we can't trust you to protect yourself. So it's a to trust the coaches, too, which is a totally different deal. I mean, I remember in high school, one kid got hit so hard and asked him if he was okay, and he said Wednesday. And, of course, it was Friday night, you know, and I just yeah. let him right back in, but, you know. Different time. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no doubt. No right, doubt. Yeah. It, it's a hard balance. There's a lot of uh, people. but And that's where the education's good, obviously. Here, more and more stories, everybody being aware of it. You know, ultimately, nobody wants a kid to get his brain hurt and, and to be to be damaged for the rest of his life. And uh, you just have, we just have to be conscientious of it and, and keep working at it to make it a safer sport. Well, Keith, you got anything else? No, I'm good. Well, maybe just to wrap things up here, and we're at the time, um, give us an idea. We touched on this a little bit already, but patient education, I I know that's important in your practice. Give us an idea of the podcast, some of the other things you guys are up to, and what you've learned about that. Because when you're communicating, you know, this kind of pathology and treatment regimen, it can be very complicated, especially if you don't have a background in it. So what have you learned, and what's been working for you guys for all different levels of, of age groups? Yeah, the podcast and the app have been amazing. I'll tell you one thing about the app. You know, it cost us a good amount of money to develop. And, and so we were going to sell it for like 10 bucks. And uh, this, you know, whole, and I, in fact, we we're going to make a DVD and sell the program for like 10 bucks. And halfway through the process, I realized, wait, I don't own a DVD player. Why am I going to, I got I to gotta make an app. I got to make this into an app. It was like a year and a half ago. So, so we made it into an app and, and we're going to sell it for 10 bucks just to try and make our money back on it. And like a couple of days before it came out, I just had a revelation, like forget trying to make money off this. Let's just give it away. And, and so then when it, my app came out, I'm on my couch with my kids and I'm going through my phone and looking at it and they're on their phones. And I said, I said, hey, I got an app, guys. My app has been released. You guys got to check it out. You got to get my app on your phone. You know, that way I'll be cool and everything. And my 10-year-old Tommy looks up and he goes, it costs 10 bucks. Like, <laughs> like wait, wait, you know, nothing, no one's going to pay 10 bucks for an app anymore. And he's not going to pay for back pain app. But uh, so we gave it away for free, which has been the greatest thing ever. We've had 30,000 downloads in the first year and a half, which... You know, for me, I mean, it's not Kardashian terms. You know, it's not like ten, two million, or ten million, or anything. <laughs> but, but for for me, for my dad and I to create something that has this information in it, and thirty thousand people to have downloaded it and have it on their phone, 
where they've got the whole exercise program and they can do these exercises. And I don't even know who these people are. Yeah. But every once in a while, I get a friend or I get a patient or I get somebody. I met somebody in the locker room the other day, one of the coaches for a team. And I said, I examined, I said, well, we got this app. And he goes, I know your app. He said, he said, I just want to tell you it's an honor to meet you because I've been doing your app for the past six months and it's been so helpful. And I didn't even know the guy. And it, it was so cool. So I, every once in a while I get these stories of how this information is helping people. And and it, it's just it's so great that you can you can release this, you can make a product, you can put it out there, and people can download it, have it on their phone and use it, share it with their friends. And it's just really cool. And then the podcast, I kind of stumbled on the podcast. I, I, I watched a YouTube video said, you know, I watched it. How do you make a podcast? I figured it out. I do it all myself. I do it on my computer. I, you know, do record the whole thing and then I just publish it. And same kind of thing. I got friends on Facebook and in different places who say, I had neck pain. I listened to your podcast and now it's better. I'm doing this exercise on your app and it's better. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it's one of the coolest things about life is, ultimately, what do we all want out of life? What are our goals and objectives and our big plans? All it takes is somebody to say thank you and you and you, everything else washes away. And you go, you know, that's all I really care about is somebody acknowledging, your, you know, that you're helping people out and trying to make this place a better place, contributing however you can. So the digital stuff for me has been so cool. And our approach is basically this knowledge. Knowledge is ubiquitous and, and to be shared to where if you come up with something and you can share it with somebody, then just give it away. And, and that's what I love about the internet and the, and the podcast is there's all this knowledge out there that the gap between the experts and the common people trying to make decisions is so much narrowed that, um, you know, what are we good at? Ultimately, we need to be good at doing the surgery and, and, and being an expert at that. The knowledge is something we can share and exchange and, and continue to learn from. And so it's been really exciting to me because I, I think every doctor and every professional will have a podcast in, in the next five or 10 years because it's so easy. You just hit record and put it out there and the people learn from it and, and share from right. it. It's been really awesome. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't agree more. I mean, Keith and I That's have great. a blast doing yeah. this and, uh, you know, I mean, getting have a conversation like this, this is amazing. I mean, we've talked to astronaut physicians, Navy SEALs, talked to a guy who was stationed in Antarctica, I mean, on and on. I mean, a 50-year-old medical student. I mean, it's just yeah. a way to connect with people and to connect with an audience out there that um, would otherwise just be listening to talk radio or walking their dog. You know, I mean, it's a good way to yeah. use your time. So. Um, I totally agree with yeah. you. I think. Uh, yeah, it's almost like sorry. It's almost like watching a documentary rather than watching some you know slapstick comedy or some talk show. Exactly. You know, where you, exactly. You, there's actually some rich information that can help right. your life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, and and you're replicating a lot of conversations that do happen out there. It's just not everybody else gets to participate in them. You know, it could be at medical yeah. conferences elsewhere. But with that, I know you got to get back to seeing some patients and. Um, Rob, thanks so much for, for jumping on with us today. It's been a super blast. There's 10 more things we want to talk about, but maybe we'll have you come back on again and finish it up later. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. And we'll get links thanks to everything that you talked about on the show notes. And uh, everyone, that was Dr. Robert Watkins, the fourth. Again, we'll have everything up so you can take a look at more wherever, whenever you listen to us. Take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.